Father, we pray now um, that you would send workers around the world. Uh, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. And it seems to get more and more that way as uh, these years pass. We need more uh, men and women in ministry to answer the call, whether locally or otherwise. And, and Father, we pray that you would do that. There are times in church history where you, Holy Spirit, have just raised up cadres of individuals to serve. And uh, at least in the American church, we're in a dry spell right now. There's more missionaries being sent to us than we're sending out. And we pray, Father, that you would, uh, if not being called to go, that we would be generous to give. And we also pray, Father, that we would be missional in our living. Um, Maybe we are um, just in business, but we're not just in business. We're your children that are doing business as ambassadors of faith. And maybe we uh, feel like we're just a teacher. What impact could we have? But we're not just teachers. We're ambassadors for you in a dry, weary world. Maybe you feel like we're just raising children, but we're not just raising children. We're raising generations to learn about you and to see what life looks like when we follow you by faith. So, Father, we pray that you would um, give us a vision that's larger than us. And we pray right now as a church that we would pause and be thankful for whatever is in our lives uh, this week that we can practice gratitude over. Father, we pray that you would hear some prayers right now of thankfulness for who you are or what you've done in our lives this week. And Father, we pray that you would make us a people that seek you, Uh, not just thankfulness, but also in supplication. So we pause now, uh, before we hear your word, to relinquish to you the things that are on our mind for this upcoming week, this upcoming month, the things that we're nervous about or anxious about, that we need to ask you to go ahead of us in. Uh, Hear our prayers. And now, Father, as we look to your word, uh, guide us and direct us as only you can. We need you, Holy Spirit, to do the work. And uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1890, a famous artist had an argument with another famous artist named Paul Gauguin. And uh, he's one of my favorites, by the way. I love uh, Gauguin's work. Uh, He had an argument with one of his best friends, Paul, and then he had an argument with, let's just call her a lady of the night, who was also known uh, by Paul Gauguin. So there's a little bit of a a triangle, a lover's squirrel here. And after those arguments, uh, Vincent Van Gogh put down his paintbrush and instead picked up a pistol. And he went to a manure pile out in the field by his house, and he shot himself in his heart. Or at least he thought he did. He actually just knocked himself down and he stumbled back to town because he said to the doctor that came to attend to him, I think I have missed myself, is what he said. He like couldn't even, he couldn't even figure out where to shoot himself in the heart. And he missed himself. 
And then a couple days passed and he got a fever. And then after the fever, he died. And his last words before he died is, life is only sorrow. Life is only sorrow. That was the reasoning of his heart from this lover's triangle, this famous artist died with the last words on his lips, life is only sorrow. We can so easily follow the reasoning of our hearts to sorrow or to any number of places that it will take us. Matter of fact, Emily Dickinson uh, famously said in a letter to her friend Mary Bowles, when she was missing her husband who was away for a long journey, Emily Dickinson is the one who said, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. And Dickinson, who was a Christian, didn't mean it in the way that has been taken in culture because that reasoning of the heart has been used to justify sin for now generations. Matter of fact, you might remember Woody Allen when he was asked about why he left his wife, Mia Farrow, for her recently turned 18 adopted daughter. Remember that? left his wife for his adopted daughter who just turned 18 to marry her. And they asked him about it in the press, and he said, the heart wants what the heart wants. And then Selena Gomez, can I use a Selena Gomez quote? (laughs) Selena Gomez, in the song entitled, The Heart Wants What the Heart Wants, says, you might be right, but I don't care. There's a million reasons why I should give you up. But the heart wants what the heart wants. It's pretty early on. We've worked in Van Gogh, Selena Gomez, Woody Allen, uh, Emily Dickinson. It's time that we get the scripture. Because here's the problem. The heart is deceitful beyond all things and beyond cure, it says in Jeremiah 17, 9. You can't follow what the heart wants. The reasoning of our hearts is bad. That's why it says in verse 47, we're going to get back to the text, but just look at verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. In John chapter 2, Jesus said, it was said of Jesus, he didn't entrust themselves to man because he knew what was in the heart of man. So early on in the ministry of Jesus, we see John, we see Luke, we see all the gospel writers saying of Jesus He sees right through us. He knows what the problem is. All the smoke and mirrors that we put up to cover up our sin. This guy, Jesus, he actually sees right through us. He sees the reasoning of our hearts. And what he says is our hearts, this is the analogy he uses, Romans chapter 2. Our hearts actually have to be circumcised. He's got to do work in us from the inside out, Romans 2. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So here's the one point, only one point today. Heart's reasoning is not a match for God's resolution. Your heart's reasoning is not a match for God's resolution. And now I have about seven sub-points after that. Uh, The first one is this. The reasoning of your heart will lead you to fear. The reasoning of your heart will lead you to fear. Look at verse 43. It will be on the screen behind me. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, 
so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The situation is, uh, they were already astonished at what he was doing. This is now the second time in the middle of all of their like fawning over Jesus for all of his great works, healing these demon-possessed people, feeding the 5,000, all of these wonderful things that they're doing. They're marveling at them. And Jesus says to them basically this, this is not a reality show. This is not a game. Matter of fact, the end of this is I've got to be delivered into the hands of men. This was the second time he said this in short order. Matter of fact, if you look up in your text, it says in verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day will be raised. And so he's saying these things to them all throughout his early ministry. Look, I know y'all think you love this. I know a lot of the things are going well right now. I know you're marveling at all the things I can do to heal. This ends up, let these words sink in, disciples. This ends up in my death. This, end, this whole thing ends up in my torture, in my crucifixion. Let these words sink into you at this moment, says Jesus. And it says they were afraid to ask him. Now, I don't think they were afraid, like, uh, were scared to ask. Because, and here's the reason for that. Uh, throughout the Gospels, we see they had no problem asking stupid questions. They did it all the time. So I don't think they were afraid of, like, asking the question. Because they always ask horrible questions. You know, like, at the Transfiguration, which just happened, Peter says, let's build, you know, tents for y'all to stay here forever. You know, they always did not mind putting their foot in their mouth. I think they were afraid to ask the same reason why you and I are afraid to open that letter from the IRS. You're just a little bit scared of what might be in there. Or you just had that scan and you get the email that it's available on my chart. And you're like, I just don't want to look. I'm, I'm afraid of what the doctor might say. I'm afraid of what that bill from the University of Alabama might be. Elizabeth, could you just pay this and tell me, don't tell me anything, just pay it and let's be done with it. I'm afraid of what the IRS might be asking. I'm afraid of what the news might be. I mean, what if I follow him? What if I, what if I say, what do you mean by that God? And he says, I've got to go die and you're going to be crucified too. I'm going to be tortured and you're going to be persecuted. What if he says that? It's just better not to know. And our hearts are led to that kind of fearful state all the time. What if this happens? What if this happens? So let me ask the question. The reasoning of your heart without God's grace will lead to fear. Where are you fearful right now? Because you've got to do this work with the help of the Holy Spirit. Because it changes, right? I mean, when I was like 16, I was afraid I might not be popular or I might get cut out of a certain group of people. And then you're in college and you're afraid that she might not say yes. After all, you already bought her like seven or eight dinners. I mean, surely she should say yes by now, but you're still afraid. She, you know, I'm $20 into this thing. It, uh, inflation has really taken a toll. But back then, you know, it was a lot cheaper to date. And then I'm afraid I might not get a job. And I'll be honest, you know what my fear is now? Am I going to have enough resources to make it to the end? You know what my other fear is? I never had that concern when I was in my 20s. My other concern is this, when am I going to get cancer? 
I mean, my heart just does those somersaults. And, and when I get some kind of injury, when my health begins to fail, how will I respond? Am I going to be given over to fear? How is your heart fearful? And however you're answering that question, can you take that to the Lord now? Fearful maybe over your kids, maybe over the economy, maybe over elections, maybe over any number of things. Could you take whatever that fearfulness is to the Lord this morning? Second thing, the reasoning of your heart can lead to pride. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. And so after they don't want to you know, talk to him about the harsh things that he's saying. So they respond by having this argument. Who's the greatest? And you can just imagine the argument, can't you? I mean, they've already been sent out, chapter 9. They've sent the 12 out. They've already had the feeding of the 5,000. They've already had the transfiguration. You can just, you can see how the argument would go. Well, when, when Jesus sent me out, I went further than you did. We went to that town and that town, and, and those people believed. Y'all didn't have any conversions. Well, at the feeding of the 5,000, I was the one serving. Do you know my things of bread I picked up? I, I looked at y'all. Y'all were just frolicking around in the hills. Y'all didn't do anything. Surely I'm the greatest because I picked up so many loaves of bread, and I was the one that really fed people. And then Peter, James, and John saying, last we checked, none of y'all were at the transfiguration. It was just us. So it, it leaves us down to us three. And then Peter saying, I was the first one he ever called. I'm the greatest. I mean, just imagine the king of kings listening to them pridefully, having all of their merit kind of there. And Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, again, he sees, he sees right through us. Which is why if you're not a Christian, you so desperately want to avoid him. You make up all kinds of excuses about why Christians are hypocrites or this can't possibly be true or all, all kinds of excuses that intellectually can be defeated pretty quickly. The real reason you're running from Christ is because you know he sees you and you don't know what to do about it. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he takes this child and he puts this child right beside him. Now, this, just is, this isn't cute, it's beautiful. It's not, the kids were cute, you know? And they did a great job leading us in worship. And, and uh, some of you look as distracted right now as some of them did. But nonetheless, it's not just cute. It's beautiful for Jesus to say, I want you to be like this child. And what's the beauty? I want you to be dependent upon me. I want you to know that there's a heavenly father and the beauty is in the dependence of this child being pulled besides Jesus and it's a picture of Jesus trying to teach us. Now, let me ask you this. Where's your heart prideful? That you're always right? That you back the right political candidate? that you are more successful than that guy down the street, that your family looks perfect right now, everybody follows the Lord, that you knew they should have put Kate in last night and they finally did and they won. <laughs> Where's your heart prideful? 
I can't preach without preaching to myself. You know where my pride is? And I've got so much. I don't, I, I don't need to fully share everything with you every Sunday. But my heart gets prideful here. I work harder than those other pastors. They take days off. Not on my water. I'm going to make sure I outwork them. That's just pride. And it's not good. It's not healthy to my family. It's not healthy to the church. It's not healthy for me. It's pride that drives that, right? Where is the reasoning of your heart leading you to pride? And then look at this picture of Jesus putting his child beside him. Uh, The reasoning of your heart can lead to exclusivity. Uh, Look at verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Now, interesting, because the first argument, you know, this goes on. There's no, there's breaks in the paragraphs for the uh, people who edited your Bible to be able to translate it to help you understand what's going on, but there's no breaks. And so right after this child gets put on this, uh, on Christ's lap, John answers. Well, there's no question. Jesus never asked the question. John just inserts himself again and says, hey, well, here's the problem. The first argument didn't work that one of us would be the greatest, So here's the second argument. Maybe we're the greatest collectively because we all follow you. Maybe us 12 are the greatest because those other people are doing things without your permission. And so it's very interesting how he kind of walks through this. And look at what he uh, kind of says. Jesus says, no, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Maybe you've had that thought uh, of exclusivity, which is basically what this is. Our team is the best. Our family is the best. Our church is the best. Our company is the best. Our party is the best. All of these things are the best. And we want you, Jesus, to condemn those other people who aren't playing by our rules. And Jesus says, no. You know, if you're not a Christian, uh, this actually might be helpful to you. Because one of the critiques of Christianity is this. Um, If this is true, one body, one Lord, one faith, why are there so many different denominations? Why can't y'all get together? Like, why is there so many divisions? But here Jesus himself opens himself up to the idea that many people might be doing God's work. Now look, I, uh, I love Reformed Presbyterianism because I think we're right. But when I'm with my Pentecostal friends, I think they get some things I don't get. And uh, you can't tell me, I love our worship services, all three of them, but you can't tell me we're not missing something when you watch the Maasai and Africa worship, right? We're missing something. Not sure what it is. And they're missing something too. Or when you watch the Episcopalians with all their pomp and with all their liturgy or the Anglicans or with the Eastern Orthodox or believers in Korea or believers in Russia. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, all of these are not an excuse for why Christianity is divided. Maybe it takes all of those people to show the glory of who Christ is. Maybe it takes all the different types and all the different uh, worship services and all the different kind of emphasis on theology because we have our emphasis, but you go to other areas of the world, they have different emphases. And maybe it takes all of that because Christ is too beautiful and glorious for any one group of people to get it all. We couldn't possibly. 
And so Jesus says, no, just let them do it. Because church is in a club. I'm going to say that, let me slow this part down for Mitchell Road. Church is not a club where you have to have the code word to get in. We don't have, as Ray Cortez told our uh, leadership on Monday night, we don't have any merit. Matter of fact, we're the people who are unmeritorious because Christ has done everything for us, but we always want to earn it. We always want to say we've cornered the market on theology. So where's your heart? Let me press down again. Where is your heart excluding others? Where do you think, high school student, that person will never come to youth group, I won't ask them. Uh, where do you, you know you should invite that person to church or journey group, but you just think, ah, oh, they're going to be so high maintenance. They talk a lot. They're a little rough around the edges. Uh, let's just keep with our people. Where is your heart excluding other people and prohibiting them from knowing the kindness and the gospel grace that you know? Number four-ish, I don't know where I am. The next point. The reasoning of the heart can lead to rage. Look at verse 51. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent the messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Our hearts are filled with rage. This text, I mean, it's laughable the way that this text is set up. Because here, Jesus knows he's getting rejected. He's going to Jerusalem. The people saw that his faith was resolute to go to Jerusalem, so they let him go. And the disciples say, let's call down fire from heaven on them. They have neither the ability nor the authority to do such a thing. But the reasoning of your heart and my heart is that so quickly filled with rage, they don't like us, let them burn. I mean, it's a little over the top, isn't it? To call a nuclear strike, basically, is what they're doing from the heaven itself down on these people who just didn't provide hospitality. You, you know, I don't know if it actually works this way or not, but apparently from hunt from red october it does where you get the nuclear code and you read it and somebody else gets the nuclear code and they read it and you both have a key i just imagine it really does work this way who knows uh and you get the key and put it in and they have to validate it and get their key and put it in and turn and then you can both press the button and the nuke goes Way too often, friends, way too often in our hearts, something happens that we don't like and we stick the key in and we say, Jesus, you stick the key in too and let's let this whole thing burn. And you're like, nope. Jesus says, I'm not sticking my key in and you don't even get a key. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And it's up to me to decide when I'll pour out my wrath and when I won't. It's not up to you. And it doesn't do your heart any good anyway to always rage against culture or rage against this website or rage against this possibility. That, let that thing rest 
in the hands of God who actually can meet it out appropriately. But unfortunately, Christians have used God to justify unjustifiable actions throughout human history. Christians have used God to justify unjustifiable actions throughout human history. You might know the um, painter Bansky. I've referenced him before. He's a brilliant uh, artist, spray paint. If you don't know who I'm talking about, look him up. B-A-N-S-K-Y. He's very obscure. They think they have his identity now. But he did a painting that's just heartbreaking, actually. And it's a painting of Jesus. It's beautiful. Uh, on the cross, crown of thorns, somehow in spray paint. It's amazing what he does with spray paint. And uh, Jesus is on this uh, cross, crown of thorns, towel around his waist, uh, at the crucifixion, uh, sides pierced, feet pierced, and in his hands are bundles of Christmas presents. And the point Bansky's making is this. You're just using Jesus to validate consumerism at Christmas. You don't really love him. Now, that's a harsh point, isn't it? But has he hit on something? Does it, has he kind of hit on the part of our hearts that use Jesus for moralism or use Jesus to make us feel good about our standing in a southern society or use Jesus to buy Christmas once a year, you know, and go over the top with materialism? Don't we often use Jesus for all the things he shouldn't be used for? And here the disciples wanted to use Jesus to pour out vengeance. And Jesus says, no way. So where's your heart raging? Where's your heart mad and angry and want to bring vengeance to this world. And then reasoning can lead to excuses. This is maybe the most uh, convicting one. And you're probably like, I'm fine on the conviction meter right now, Andy. If we could just get to the gospel, we'll get there. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you really going to follow me? Are you going to follow me when you don't know where you're going? And you have to trust me, says Jesus. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you. But first let me say farewell to those at my home. And that's interesting because in Middle Eastern culture, that was known as avoidance. Like that was the telling sign that he wasn't going to follow him. Just like when we do this in our culture too, it just looks different. Uh, When uh, somebody says to you, hey, do you want to come over Thursday night? And you don't. So you respond by saying, let me check with my wife to see if it's okay. And you run home to your wife and you say, hey, they asked us to come over for dinner. I'm going to say that we're too busy, right? Like we're all on the same page in case it comes a different way. And you oh, no, I'm so sorry. My wife has something. You do the same thing. That's exactly what's happening in this text. I'll go follow you, but let me first go say farewell to my family. Let me check in with them and make sure it's okay. Everybody knows Middle Eastern culture, that's a no. And Jesus says, no one that puts his hand on his plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The reasoning of our heart can lead to excuses. I've got this priority in my life first. I'm not going to evangelize because I'm not trained. I'm not going to be generous because I don't have enough funding yet. 
Uh, I'm going to take you seriously after I have fun in college. Uh, I will get to uh, encouraging that friend after I get my email list done. I mean, pick your excuse. But our hearts, the reasoning of our hearts is to lead towards excuses of why we wouldn't follow God. Our hearts condemn us. Now, friends, here's the good news. Two points very quickly. The first one is this. God reveals himself to us. In verse 24 of chapter 9, we see this transfiguration. I'm going to read a little bit before, uh, verse 32, I'm sorry. I'll read a little bit before. And behold, two men were talking with him. This, I'm, let me go up to verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face altered, and his clothing became this dazzling white. And two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory of his departure when he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So here on Mount Hermon, in my opinion anyway, Jesus transfigures himself. At this one area of the world where it said evil was going to reign, Jesus shows himself for who he really is and is transfigured into his glory so that all might see all the demonic forces and all the forces of that day. This is who I am. I am here on their, their shores and their ground to go to Jerusalem to win their hearts. And if you want to stop me, try to stop me. But I'm going to reveal myself as the king of kings. And look at what it says. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. So wake up. A lot of you lifted your heads right there. Actually, a lot of you were actually asleep. I just meant it metaphorically. Wake up from just thinking that this life is about something else than seeing God's glory. And dazzling ourselves at the mystery that God would come to die for us so that we might know him and walk with him all the days of our lives. Wake up to the reality that when you look in the mirror, that's not actually who you are. That the king of kings was willing to take on human flesh to become this awful, grotesque person on the cross with half of his beard pulled out and his back splayed open and blood and tears and mucus coming out of his face. All, nothing, nothing beautiful about that. So that you and I might look in the mirror and say, we're a child of God. We're part of the royal priesthood. I'm not who the culture says I am. I'm not a loser. I'm not this person who is ugly. I'm one who is loved by God himself. It's what your heart wants. And the reason why we know that is because we find it in all myths, in all stories in humanity. Frederick Buechner the famous uh, Princeton novelist said, maybe above all, they are the tales of transformation. 
where all creatures are revealed in the end for what they truly are. The ugly duckling becomes the great white swan. The frog is revealed to be a prince. The beautiful but wicked queen is unmasked in all of her ugliness. Their tales of transformation were the ones who live happily ever after, as by no means everybody does in fairy tales, are transformed into what they have it in them at their best to be. In other words... Maybe the reason why that's in all the fairy tales is because everybody's actually trying to find the gospel that you are a child of the king and that you with all of your flaws and all of your problems are made for eternity and made to be fully awake to see the glory of God. And then, I'll close with this, last point, God is resolute to change your heart. Again, look at verse uh, 51 of chapter 9. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. A lot of different ways to translate that. It's actually very complex. Prosopon is the Greek word there, which means he was resolute. Or he set, one translation, set his face like flint. In other words, Jesus was going to do everything he needed to do to get to Jerusalem without distraction, without excuse, to die for us. So that we don't have to live in fear. There's a reason why when Jesus came to this world, he said so many times, don't fear, don't fear. Jesus went to the cross so that we don't have to live with pride. We can humble ourselves and allow him to exalt us. Jesus went to the cross so that we don't have to be exclusive. So that we can say to all and any who would come in, come, taste, and see. Without money that you need to buy, the glories of Christ. Jesus went to the cross so that we don't have to live in rage. The nations plot. The kingdoms totter. The nations rage. The Lord sits on his throne and laughs. Psalm 2. You don't have to live in rage. Jesus came to the cross so that we don't have to live with excuses anymore. Because we know he truly loves us. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the man who is trying to be a Christian is trying to hold on to something. The man who is a Christian feels that he is being held by something. It has been put to him. It is there. It may even seem to be in spite of him. But it's there. It's not what he's doing that matters to him. It's what's been done to him. It's what he has become. It's the awareness of this power within him. It's life. Now, for some of you younger people, I know you might be fighting against it, kicking against it right now. But just open your minds up to the possibility that God's calling you to walk with him and be his child. And just go ahead and follow. And for some of us, maybe God's calling you to do something and it's on you. It's life. Don't avoid it. But for all of us, make God the king of your story. Uh, Before um, Van Gogh died, he cut off his ear. You all know that. Uh, I I think most people know that. And he sent it in a letter to the lady of the night he had a relationship with. Why he thought that would work, I have no idea. I've I've tried to send, you know, well, that was just going to go down the bad path. 
uh, I've learned, I am so matured before your presence that I know to pull myself out of a joke I'm about to make. I, five years ago, I would have made that joke. And y'all would have laughed, and then I would have gotten emails about it. Um, but Van Gogh, he, he rattled off 70 paintings in 70 days. And then on the 71st day is when he tried to shoot himself. But you know what his last paintings were? The paintings of him with his ear bandaged up. It's called a self-portrait of a bandaged ear. And you've seen it. You can look it up. I should have put a picture in the slide. And he, he shows, you know, camera-facing angle, he shows his shame of his ear bandaged up, and it's his self-portrait. That painting last sold in 1998 for $71 million. That was 98 money. So I'm sure it's in the 200 millions by now. And Russ Ramsey, PCA pastor, said recently about that painting, that canvas faithfully captures a defining moment of shame and need for rescue by showing the bandaged side and it's become a priceless treasure. This is how God sees his people. We're fully exposed in our shortcoming, yet we are of imaginable value to him. This is how we should see others and how we should be willing to be seen by others, broken and of incalculable worth. Friends, you can be truly known and truly loved. Let God not just forgive your sins. He's done that already. Let them change and circumcise your heart. Let them take away the fear, the exclusivity, the pride, the rage, all the things that plague your heart. Let them change you from the inside out. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Now, Father, we need you uh, to do the rest of the work. We need you to be the God who by your Holy Spirit will change us, but may we explore the reasoning of our own hearts and bring our bandaged self to you and remind ourselves of the gospel that although we're flawed, you think we're of uncalculable worth. And so now we live out of that security and that comfort and that joy. May we live gospel-centered, Christ-exalting lives. May we be fully awake, mesmerized by your mystery and your glory. And may, Father, we walk in faith this week rather than by fear. We pray in your name. Amen.